0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Episode 8, The Two Towers, Part 1. Yep, we're getting back into it with the Middle-earth and Old World wine series, wherein I, Emma Ariane the I, will pair wine with all of the places in J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings with different wine regions in Europe. If you haven't listened to the previous episodes in this series, I do recommend, but not require, that you listen to those first. So far, we've got Episode 1, The Hobbit, and Episodes 4 and 5, The Fellowship of the Ring, Parts 1 and 2. This is Part 1 of The Two Towers, and we'll release Part 2 next episode. This one is fun because we talk more about some wine stuff that we haven't touched on in previous episodes, and Winston talks a bunch about history and the mythology behind these books, but before we get into that, I have a few matters of business I'd like to discuss. First of all, Thank you so much to everyone who has been showing us love on Twitter. If you don't follow us yet, please do so. We'd love to talk to you there, as well as on Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram, all at Pairing Podcast. It has been so amazing to see your reactions to the show thus far, so if you haven't connected with us on social media, please do. Also, thank you to everyone who has reviewed the show on Apple Podcasts. That is hugely meaningful, and if you haven't yet and you have two minutes today to give us a rating and review, it truly makes a huge difference. Apparently it's like having a ring of power in the podcast world. And you will have my own personal undying love. Second, speaking of Tolkien mythology, I am very excited to announce that you can now hear me on an episode of one of my personal favorite podcasts, Spirits. If by some chance you don't listen to Spirits yet, you MUST go check it out. They've been an inspiration to me. Hosts Amanda and Julia and editor Eric are all podcasting geniuses, not to mention delightful to be around, and I am so grateful that they were willing to record an episode with me. Unsurprisingly, it's Tolkien-related, but on that one we're talking about the Silmarillion, a little bit more about the mythology behind Tolkien's Middle-earth. So if you'd like to hear a little more about Tolkien and a little less about wine, please go listen to that episode. Follow them at Spirits Podcast on Twitter and all other social media. They are amazing. I love them. They always make my week better. Thank you so, 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 so much. Third, we have some big, exciting news. We just launched a Patreon for the show. If you're not familiar with Patreon, basically it's a site in which you pledge a set monthly donation to a project, and in return, you get access to extras, bonus material, interactions with us, goodies, and more. We are super, super excited about this because making the show a little more cost effective means that we can really expand what we're doing like get more guests on the show, get better editing software. Guys, GarageBand is currently eating my soul. Additional microphones, you know, stuff like that. If you'd like to become a pairing patron for as little as $1 a month, you will get access to exclusive content, deleted scenes, including many of Winston's historical rants, customized pairings for me for the works of your choice, monthly live streams, and Winston recording a cover of a song of your choice. How awesome is that? When you become a patron, we'll thank you on the show, and if you become an advanced patron at $25 a month, we'll thank you in every single episode. We're super excited about growing the pairing community and would be honored for you to be a part of it. If you think you might want to join us, check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash pairingpodcast. If a monthly donation sounds like too much to you, we also now have one-time donations set up on our website at thepairingpodcast.com. Also, there is absolutely no need for you to give any money towards the show. Your listening is a reward in and of itself, and, like we said, if you have time to leave us a rating or a review, or tell your friends and family about us, that is equally valuable to me. I just love you for listening, and I am so excited to see where this show goes next. Without further ado, here is Episode 8, The Two Towers, Part 1. We're back. This time moving on to The Two Towers. The Two Towers, which I know is your favorite of the trilogy. It's my least favorite of the trilogy, but I still love it. Why is it your least favorite? Uh, it, I think it's because it's I it, it's not so much that anything is wrong with The Two Towers as like The Fellowship of the Ring has such a you know, warm spot in my heart. And then the return of the king is just fucking badass. So, um
1: I don't know. I think there's a lot of badass. Also, also in the, two in the book,
0: in the book, which is what we're theoretically talking about, Helm's Deep is nowhere near as extensive as they make it in the movie. Well, yeah, it's so, a
1: big set piece.
0: Yeah, yeah. So it becomes like the crucial conflict of the movie, where in the book it's like, it's a chapter and it's a cool chapter, but it's it's more like saruman and the and the conflict with saruman is actually the the kind of pinnacle of the two towers at least the first half of the two towers mm-hmm. and and obviously gollum and also i guess that's the thing a lot of things that i think are really important to the two towers as a book happen in the return of the king the movie like shelob's lair kirith ungol that all happens yeah, in the two towers in the book
1: it's really weird that they chose to put the Shelob stuff in the.
0: In I think the... it makes sense. I I think I think it makes sense how with how they did it.
1: I guess so. They didn't want like a another huge thing to distract you after the big set piece action.
0: Exactly. Anyway, so we're talking about the two towers, and so it's only appropriate to me that we're drinking Austrian wine. Skull. <laughs> well, because I mean, really, the like you said the rohan the rohirrim and rohan are based very much on the vikings and kind of norse mythology more so obviously they don't make a lot of wine in norway so no. we don't really have norse wine to drink they but, make mead i think but, but they're
1: i think they're very associated with like you know they they're called the horse lords and so i think they're more associated with like the Germanic mainland peoples, yeah. the sort of pre-Viking cultures that that permeated that part of northern Europe. Yeah. And, you know, the British Celts were actually the most famous for using horses because of their chariots. They were big charioteers. But mm-hmm. the Germans definitely were into it, too. And, I mean, if you go into the Irish, like, Cahoolan myths, then mm-hmm. they're all about them. All about them horses.
0: All about them hoaxes. So anyway, so that's that's sort of the reason why we're drinking Austrian wine. Austrian wine also happens to be some of the best and actually oldest in the world. Austria has a very, very old history, like one of the oldest um, histories of winemaking. What we now know as Austrian wine is very modern, and so we don't really know what Austrian wine was really like before the past, say, 40 years or so. But, well, I mean, some people do, but it's it's totally changed in the past 40 years. But anyway, my point is, we're drinking this awesome, awesome wine. weingutlach Grüner Gruneweltliner Fetterspiel. Jawohl. Jawohl. So just I'm not going to go into, in these first few episodes, I'm not going to go into Austrian wine law or German wine law because it's really complicated and um, I don't want to, Kind of bog anybody down with that. But so we're drinking this wine. The grape is Gruner Weltliner. And Gruner Weltliner is the kind of quintessential white grape of Austria. It's the most famous grape that comes from Austria. And we're drinking Weingut Lagler, which is a producer there. Gruner Weltliner Federspiel is just a fun word to say. And I believe it means falconry. In.
1: Falconry.
0: Yes. So this has to do with wine law in this particular region of Austria, which is called the Wachau. Um, and that is the region that I am first going to pair with Rohan, where we meet our heroes again at the beginning of the Two Towers. So Aragorn, Gimli, and Legolas are going on this chase, uh, trying to find Merry and Pippin, who've been kind of stolen by the Urukai hate that. Yeah. Oh, it's terrible. It's real bad. But, so, the Wachau is where most of the great white wine of Austria. Not all, but it's the most famous region, I would say. It's the most prestigious region in Austria. And it's got this tier system for how it classifies its Gruner Wettliner and its Riesling. And Federspiel is one of those classifications. And it means falconry. Again, I'm not going to go into it too much right now. Um, because I don't think, I don't think that's important right now. We'll get into the falconry and the schmaragd, which I think means like green lizard, emerald lizard or something. That's another. Yeah. like that they have yeah. animal totems oh, for yeah. their grapes. Oh yeah, Austrian. Cool. Well, it's not for grapes. It's for, it has to do with, um, sugar and must weight and ripeness of grapes and, um, alcohol percentage and stuff like that. It's very hmm. interesting. Yeah, the Germans and the Austrians, they've got lots of complicated wine laws. Just like the Rohirrim have complicated horse laws, maybe. I don't know. Do they? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Probably. Probably. So, like I said, um, Gruneweltliner is the primary grape of this region, but Austrian Riesling is also amazing. And just FYI, a lot of people shy away from German Riesling because they think it's all sweet. That's not true, but definitely some German Riesling is sweet. Pretty much all Austrian Riesling is dry. So if you see an Austrian Riesling and you're worried about getting a sweet Riesling, you're safe with Austrian Riesling for the most part. Nice. Yeah, it's a good good fun fact. For now, I just wanted to give you some great producers of Gruner Wettliner in the Wachau in Austria. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, these are some of the just... Most amazing wines in the world. and And most people don't know about them, I would say. So one of my favorite producers that's very affordable is burger b e r g e r um, and they make a Gruner devoer. A lot of Austrian producers, they make Gruner in uh, liter bottles. And most of them have screw caps. So it's like very easy access to a lot of wine. It's really funny. It's one of my favorite things because gruner gruner high-end Gruner is, like, amazing as well. But you can get really good, inexpensive Gruner, which is awesome. And in liter bottles, you get even more for your money. And I usually use that as a selling point to people. But sometimes people get really offended when I'm like, and you get an extra 25%. And they're like, well, I'm not going to drink that. And I'm like, well, okay, then then don't. Yeah. So anyway, uh, that's a fun fact. Burger makes a great liter bottle of Gruner Veltliner. Um, Loimer is also a great producer, Brundelmeier, Nigel, Nikolaihof, and this wine that we're tasting right now, Lagler. These are all, these are all awesome, awesome wines.
1: Do you know anything about the shape of the German and Austrian wines that like weird steeple? Yeah,
0: the, bottle? oh God, what's it called? Um, there is, there is a name for that. I got,
1: no, it's, that was a, it's a, it's
0: a H O C K. Hawk is the name of the shape of uh, Riesling bottles.
1: Okay, so why? What's this deal?
0: <sighs> I don't know.
1: It's pretty. I mean, I, I think it's pretty. <laughs>
0: yeah, it's pretty. I mean, to, I, I'd have to, to be perfectly honest, I'd have to do a lot more research on bottle shapes and why they became you know, in indicative of the region where they come from and why certain wine producers like certain bottle shapes other than others. Because um, some of them are quite iconic. Like Chianti used to be in that like wide base bottle with like the basket around it. Yeah. And that is called a fiasco.
1: Oh. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, isn't
0: that, that's another fun fact. So, but in terms of the hock and the, and the shape of the Riesling bottle, I don't know. I don't know the reason why. I'd have to do, I'd have to do more research on that. Fair enough. Anyway, let's uh, move on to some uh, grape and character pairings. Yeah, why not? Yeah, why not? So um, we're going to talk about the main characters that we meet in the two towers in Rohan, which are Aomer and Eowyn. Mm -hmm. We'll talk about Theoden later, but um, Aomer and Eowyn are brother and sister. Aragorn... And Legolas and Gimli first come across Aomer, who's sort of like the herald warrior of yeah. of Rohan. He's out there being dope. He's out there being dope. He's played by Carl Urban in the movie. Um, the only New Zealander to be in the main cast. I didn't
1: realize Carl Urban was New Zealandish. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. He's New Zealandish.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but, but so isn't he like exiled by Wormtongue? Isn't that why he's out there riding around in the first place?
0: Yes. In when we, when we meet him or no, yes, I forget. I forget how it happens in the movie. Exactly. I believe that. Yes. It's like a flashback to Wormtongue exiling him because Wormtongue is secretly working for Saruman. I believe that. No, no, no. Okay. I got this. All right. Okay. So what happens is Eomer just out patrolling, I think with his, with his men. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he comes back to Edoras, which is the capital of Rohan. And then Theoden exiles him, and that's why he's not there at Helm's Deep. Mm. So he's not initially exiled, but then he becomes exiled. But when he comes across Aragorn and Gimli and Legolas, he's just out because they fought the uruk who stole Merry and Pippin. Yeah, and he's
1: like, you guys are also cool.
0: Yeah, he's like, I'll give you some horses. Luckily, we uh, lost only three men. And now we got three extra horses, so there you go. Or That's... maybe only two, because Legolas and Gimli share a horse, because they're adorable. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it's so grim, though.
0: It, yeah, oh, yeah, it's super, super grim. Oh, you're going to yeah. have
1: these extras, because yeah. our friends died.
0: Yep, yep. And I remember that being a little more disturbing in the book, actually, than in the movie. In the movie, it's kind of like, oh, okay, there's two extra horses, cool. In the book, it's like, oh, Oh man, you're riding dead people's horses, and I think they they acknowledge that a little bit more in the in the book. But anyway, so Eomer I'm giving him the grape that we that we were just talking about, Gruner Veltliner. And the reason why let's see, let's see why. Um so I wrote here Gruner Veltliner is one of the most renowned and unusual grapes of its region. It's lighter in body, but with great structure, highly quaffable at its worst, some of the finest wine at its best. Kinda like Aomer. yeah. You know, highly he's quaffable. He's highly quaffable. Yeah, <laughs> Carl Urban's a good, very quaffable. He's very quaffable. Also, props to him for having a heck of a career yeah. after after Lord of the Rings, because that dread. was sort of his breakout role.
1: Super underrated, dread.
0: That's right. Really good. That's right. And if you haven't seen um, it, go
1: see it. That's and so good. he's
0: and he's what's his name in Star Trek. And and
1: he's uh, he's bones. He's bones. That's, that's right. right. He's bones. Yeah, he's Hank McCoy.
0: And he was just in. Um,
1: not, that's from. X-Men. No, that's that's X Men. <laughs> but he is still Doctor McCoy. Yeah,
0: he's. Is it Doctor McCoy? Yeah, yeah. it's Doctor McCoy. Um, not Hank, but anyway. And then he was just in the most recent Thor movie. Yeah. So both he and Cate Blanchett. I was I was like pr- I was like pretty excited about the little Lord of the Rings reunion. Yeah. In, in Thor, that was fun. So anyway, uh, so that's so that's Aomer. And next is Eowyn, who is perhaps the woman with the most agency in the whole trilogy. Yeah, she's
1: like the only actual she's female She's like the only <laughs> actually female <laughs> character.
0: Like, Galadriel is a character, but she doesn't really do anything. Yeah. she's just kind of is there and is badass. Arwen is literally not there at all in the books. I mean, she's there mentioned. for like five... She's mentioned. She's there for like five seconds, but she's not given any agency. No
1: one kills the Witch King yeah, of Agmar. Yeah, no she, spoilers.
0: Yeah, she's she's pretty fucking badass. Yeah. I'm sorry.
1: I am no man. Yeah, pretty dope. Yeah, it's pretty, also pretty awesome. way to kill an evil demon with the technicality. That's
0: right. Yeah,
1: <laughs> I'm super into that. No, no man can, can kill, kill me.
0: me. No I'm I'm not a man. Actually, yeah. I'm not a man. So you would think uh, you would think that the rest that. of the people would uh, pick up on the fact. Oh, Oh, maybe women should do more of <coughs> the, They've, you know, work around they're here. They're slow. They're anyway, slow on the uptake. Anyway. So the grape that I'm giving Eowyn is the other unique grape to Austria, which is Blaufrankisch, which is one of my favorite grapes, not only to drink, but also to say Blaufrankisch. 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 It's considered the greatest red wine of Austria. It's rich, spicy, earthy, and fruity, but not super tannic. So it's got really great depths of flavor to it. Um, many different levels, many different styles of Blaufrankisch, but usually is pretty versatile and and also pretty quaffable, but but t- is a little bit more complex and harder to get to know, just like Eowyn. And it's and it, I also think it's very underrated, just like Eowyn. So anyway, those are my pairings for those two. I'm going to talk more about Black Frankish in just a little bit, because we're going to go to the region where Black Frankish is mostly grown in just a little bit. Hang, on, hold on to your horses, because <laughs> we're in Rohan.
1: I see what Got you it. did there. Got it. I see what you did. Yeah,
0: that was a that was a joke. <laughs> that was a pun. It was a good one. Thanks. Thanks. All right. So meanwhile, so the the fun part about the two towers is that min- this is where we suddenly get many different timelines that are going on simultaneously. So in the book, we begin with Aragorn, Gimli, and Legolas, and what they have gone through. Then we switch over to Merry and Pippin, who were captured by the Urukai. Boromir died trying to save them, but it he failed. They, the Urukai have been given orders not to kill the halflings because one of the halflings is bearing the ring of power. They don't know that, but, but some, but, so that's why Mary and Pippin are not killed. Also, featuring a scene in the movie where Andy Serkis plays like three different orcs and Urukai at once, it's awesome. <laughs> uh, if, and you know, you wouldn't know it's him unless you watch the special features like I do. Anyway, um, <laughs> So, so next, the the next big place we go to is one of my favorites, the Forest of Fangorn, yeah. where the Ents are. Ents are basically tree people. There's a really great backstory to where the Ents came from, and basically, um, the there's like the Smith God, whose name is Aule. This is in Tolkien mythology, and so Aule is the one who created the dwarves which is pretty cool. And Yavanna, his wife who's kind of like the earth goddess, she creates the ents in response to that because she says if he's creating these creatures that are going to like cut trees down, I want creatures that can resist that and Ooh. have and, and give voice to so she's basically giving a voice to a forest. Tolkien is a super environmentalist, which is awesome and really really
1: fun. Well, having seen most of Europe turned into a hellish moonscape wasteland. That makes sense.
0: Sure, sure, but also, you know, you can just, you can just like nature.
1: Oh, sure, sure, but I, I imagine like if you watched like well, all the beautiful green in your life turn into horrible gray mud with chlorine gas. Like, which is
0: also, I mean, sort of a water. product of the time, because I mean, I mean, Tolkien was. Born just shortly after the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, so I think I think a lot of that has to play oh, in yeah. his discussion. I think that's the, a good point. Just yeah. the backlash
1: generally, but also yeah. I mean, like, I I think especially in the movie, um, but maybe like they make a point of saying like this: the way that Saruman and the Urukai yeah go about industrializing
0: mm-hmm. is
1: like it's offensive to nature itself, you know, it's super gross.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Like
1: there's no overstating the hellscape that resulted from world war one.
0: Totally. And And I, and I just want to clarify, um, because I know you're very, your, your theory is very much that Tolkien was influenced in great part by world war one. His response to that was, he says, listen, nothing I wrote, was an allegory for my experience in World War 1 but was I ex- affected by the experience of course every writer is and so I'm sure I like he drew from that yeah. so I just wanted to clarify that because he um he says that in the foreword to the Lord of the Rings yeah
1: I'm not trying to say it's an allegory I just think yeah, yeah you can't you can't dismiss an experience that monumental from your no, life no
0: no absolutely and I was I was actually I mean this is not necessarily the discussion for right now, but but going into like Tolkien's whole experience, like he really almost died. Like and everyone in his infantry, I think I, I'm bad at met, uh, military terminology, but everyone else died, but he got sick, and so he got sent home, or he didn't fight because just because he got sick. Whoa! Yeah, that's crazy, right?
1: I did not know that. Yeah,
0: or at least that's that's what I read. It may or may not be true. Cool guy. Cool guy, Tolkien. So anyway, so we're going to Fangorn, the forest of Fangorn. And so this is going to be the third and last of my uh, forest wine pairings. And this one is going to be the region of Chinon in the Loire Valley in France. And the primary grape of... We talked a little bit about Chinon earlier, actually, when we talked about Bilbo, because I paired Cabernet Franc with Bilbo. And so Cabernet Franc is the primary grape of Chinon and it's this really kind of like earthy, like tree bark, like almost quality to a wine while still, it's very musky. It's very dusty, you know, I mean, some of them are like that. Some of them are a little bit more reserved, but they're, they're not full bodied wines. They're kind of lighter at the same time. They have red fruit to them, which is, which is really fun. So I wrote here, not as, quite as thick and dense as Monsant and Priorat, which were our other two forest wines, if you remember from the previous episodes. Lighter in body, but can be earthy and woody, like tree bark almost sometimes. That's what I wrote, because I'm repeating myself. So anyway, (laughs) um, but obviously, uh, Treebeard is, he is Fangorn. That's his, that's his real name. Treebeard, I believe, is the translation of Fangorn. And so he's this basically giant walking, talking tree, who's pretty awesome. And um, so some producers, unfortunately with Chinon, it's very hard to find affordable Chinon, but there's a region just across the river, I think, um, called Bourgogne, and um, that is also made from Cabernet Franc. It's a little bit bigger, it's a little bit juicier, it's a little bit fruitier, it doesn't quite have that like really austere, kind of earthy, funky quality to it all the time. But it's a similar quality, and it's more, it's easier to find affordable Bourgognes than it is to find, or bourguise. I, and my French is terrible. Uh, so that's a kind of good alternative if you're looking for a nice Cabernet Franc from the Loire Valley. But some producer from Chenon to look out for. Pierre Sourdet is one that we actually found a really nice affordable example of. Charles Joguet, and Domaine Bernard Baudry. Those are some famous, good, really great producers in Chinon. Um And so now, this is a really fun one. Um, <laughs> I was thinking about what grape I would pair with tree Beard, and I decided on the grape Rokatsitli.
1: Rokatsitli?
0: Rokatsitli, which is actually a macedonian grape but i chose it yes i chose it because it's one of the oldest known grape varietals in the world because most of the oldest uh grapes come from that region of the world kind of like georgia macedonia greece that area the balkan
1: yeah exactly
0: exactly
1: oh that's so cool so alexander the great could have drank himself to death on this uh this very grape
0: he totally could have And so, this is what I wrote. Um, One of the oldest known grape varieties in the world, like Fangorn, is one of the oldest beings in the world. Got it? Get the connection? Okay, cool. Oh, Um,
1: okay. I'm up to speed.
0: Yep. Also, oddly, it was one of the first weird, cool varietals that I became familiar with when I first started working in wine. I happened to work at a wine store that sold a Rokitsitli by the producer Tikves in Macedonia. It was an originally a Georgian varietal, but now it's mostly found in Macedonia, and uh, yeah, and it's really it's really cool. It's actually in some ways similar to Grüner Veltliner, which we're um, which we're drinking right now.
1: So just sweet grapes all around, and well, in it's the not sweet. Times.
0: These aren't sweet grapes. No, no, this is not sweet wine. Oh, my bad. Yeah, this is dry. One of the things that we talk about a lot in the wine world is like the perception of sweetness. Because a lot of people will come in and say, well, I want a sweet red. Most people don't actually want a sweet red. They want, like, a fruity red. or like yeah, yeah, exactly. Or what you perceive as sweetness in this <clears throat> wine is just kind of the fruit quality of the wine. It's got some ripe fruit to it. But it's not sweet. The residual sugar on this is very, very low.
1: I just like the idea of all these like burly barbarian dudes sitting around drinking like nice white wine.
0: Yeah, <laughs> out
1: of jugs. Totally. It's like I mean, cause okay, it might not be sweet, but I do. I would describe uh, even the drier rieslings. There's a there's a
0: ripeness like, to the fruit.
1: Well, I would describe them as uh, kind of dainty, they're like they're mm-hmm. they're sort of. Mm-hmm. They, you know, they have a a quick taste.
0: Well, the thing on the palate, the, the 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 reason why, and I'll give you the reason why there's so much quote unquote sweet wine in this region is because the the acidity level is so high on these wines, mm. on Gruners and um and particularly Rieslings, and to if you have just acidity without any sugar, it tastes very harsh and it's really hard. Yeah. To drink that, so in order to balance the wines, you have to have a certain amount of sweetness to go to balance out. Just to cut that acidity. Yeah, you have to a certain amount of sugar actually to balance out the acidity. It's a you know one of the fun chemistry things about wine. Hmm. If you've got a wine that's all sugar, it's you mean there are some people who will like that. If you've got a wine that's all acid, you'll have some people who like that. But finding a, finding a balance somewhere between them is really where these these wines shine. There we go. All right, moving on from Treebeard. Now we go to... So I, I skipped over Edoras a little bit because there's a lot that happens in Edoras, the city, which is the capital of Rohan itself. We're not going to give a specific grape to that or a region to that place, but we're going to skip over to uh, everyone's favorite of the Two Towers, to Helm's Deep. And so Helm's Deep, I am giving the Austrian region of Bergenland, which, you guessed it, is the region where Blaufrankisch is the primary grape. (laughs) Yes, I told you Blaufrankisch would come back. I wrote here, deserves more attention than it gets. Sour cherries, dustiness. No one really thinks about it, but it's fantastic and fun to say. These are all things that are true about Blaufränkisch. I don't know that I can really um, apply that to Helms Deep because no one really forgets about it cuz it's pretty fucking awesome. Okay, but and, you
1: keep talking about dustiness though. Yeah, can you yeah, describe yeah. a little bit what like what you mean when you say dustiness in the in the I bouquet think it's a, of the wine? Well, I think it's whatever. a
0: I think it's more of a mouthfeel thing than it is a flavor thing. Like it's sediment or mm. No, it's not sediment. It's 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 a quality, it's like it's like the feeling on your tongue. It's it's a muted quality to a wine. Um it, it's almost it, more
1: basic than acidic or
0: n- no, no. It's it's more it's more like it's a quality of earthiness. You know, you can say a wine is earthy, but what does that mean? There's all sorts of earth. You know, you can get forest floor. You can get kind of this like soil quality to a wine or you can get this like dustiness which it it, like it it can almost taste chalky in your mouth
1: oh the chalky taste that makes sense that's that i've experienced yeah Yeah. okay so so that makes sense that's
0: part of it that's part of it a lot of but for me at least part of why i'll never be a really great sommelier is because for me wine is very on like One of my customers just told me the other day, she was like, I like the way you talk about wine because you're very right brained. And I was like, "Okay, (laughs) I think that's a good I think that's a good description of how I think about wine is, you know, I'm not thinking about like the chemistry behind it. I'm thinking about what I get from it viscerally. And I'll never be a really great sommelier because I care more about that experience than I do about figuring out why it's happening. I like figuring about why it's happening, but that's not my primary objective. So and to be a really great sommelier, you have to know why. And I can tell you vaguely why these things happen, but I'd have to do a lot more learning and a lot more studying to tell you the real reasons why. So it's like any discipline. Learning about wine is like any discipline. You have to you have to learn everything about it to really know it. Anyway, so Bergenland is Helm's Deep. I also think that Blaufrankisch is like a great grape to be drinking while watching the Helm's Deep scene or reading that chapter in the book. And so some of my favorite producers are Iby. So that's just I-B-Y is a producer. They also make one of my favorite rosés made from the Blaufrankisch grape. Um, it's terrific. Blaufrankisch rosés are fantastic. Um, Hans Nietnaus is one of my other favorite producers of Blaufränkisch, Frankish and Pietnauer. And specifically, there's this great, there's this wine called Pitti, P-I-T-T-I, from Pietnauer, and it's got a little bird on it, and it's a blend of the grapes Blaufränkisch and Zweigelt, which is also really fun to say. And I'll talk about Zweigelt some other time because I also love Zweigelt. But I love that, I love that wine, so if you find that wine um, go get it and drink it, because I've been finding it really hard to find here in Colorado. So go drink some pity for me. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening to this first half of The Two Towers. Tune in next time to hear about what wine we pair with Isengard, Ithilien, and Shelob's Lair. Also, I've gotten a few requests to talk more about the wines of the Southern Hemisphere, namely Australia, New Zealand, Chile, Argentina, and South Africa. Don't worry, these episodes are in the works. I purposefully wanted to release these European wine-centric episodes first, not because I think they're better or more important, but my experience was that learning about old world wine regions really helped me to understand more about new world wine regions, which is what most of the southern hemisphere belongs to. Also, I'm trying to coordinate some awesome guest stars, so there's a lot to look forward to. Please feel free to send me all of your requests via any social media or our website, or our email, pairingpodcast at gmail.com. Pairing was created, produced, hosted, and edited by Emma Sherjarko, with music, audio recording, and co-hosting by Winston Shaw, and logo artwork by Darcy Zimmerman and Katie Huey. If you'd like more information, links, and clarifications on what we talked about this episode, please check out the show notes and visit our blog on our website at thepairingpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at PairingPodcast to keep tabs on what we're up to. Come check us out on Patreon at patreon.com pairingpodcast, where you can pledge as little as $1 a month to get access to exclusive content, customized pairings from me, live streams, and more. Feel free to send us any thoughts, questions, requests, and pairings of your own on our website or on any social media platform. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts and sharing with your friends. Thank you so much for listening. Till next time, cheers.